I called a friend and I said, I think they're testing medicine on HIV on women in prostitution. Welcome to The Best Women, I'm Julie Bindle. And this week, we're speaking to Yagmur Yugakizi, Turkish-born, raised in France, 25 years old, and already with a very impressive feminist portfolio. She's interested in issues such as religious fundamentalism, prostitution and the wider sex trade, and gender identity and the threat to women's liberation. She did a really important investigation that I read about which is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to her on this podcast. She looked at medical trials of prostituted women throughout decades of two drugs. One is nonoxinol 9, a spermicide that was used as a contraceptive, but it's since been known to cause lesions, which then of course make women more vulnerable to not just HIV, but other STIs. She also looked at PrEP, the preventative drug that can reduce chances of contracting HIV from sex or intravenous drug use. And these medical trials really do beg a belief in the way that the women were guinea pigs, human guinea pigs, whose safety and well-being were disregarded. And one can only guess, assume, it was because they were prostituted. Now, part one of this interview was conducted in a cafe, as I'm sure you can hear, the odd hiss of a cappuccino machine. But hopefully that won't distract you from the brilliance of Yagmor. So HIV is discovered, it's named mid-80s, and then soon after you start having trials on women in prostitution. And they also started working, um, there's a case in Kenya where women in prostitution were not contracting HIV and they were also interested in how they managed to develop antibodies. There was a sort of fascination with women in prostitution, this is what I wanted to say. So with HIV it became really a target group I think. So medical guinea pigs like you say. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> let's let's name it as it is. Mm-hmm. And so this Nanoxinol 9, they started in the late 80s and they started publishing research in the early 90s. And what's striking about this research is that really early on they're using the term sex worker when the term It was not even used by the New York Times back in the day. I did some research in my book, The Pimping of Prostitution, about when the term sex worker Mm -hmm. came into common parlance. And you're absolutely right. It was around as early as the late 1970s because, of course, it was the the pimping lobby that came up with it. But it absolutely did not get in the popular mainstream media until much, much later in the 1990s. Yeah, and I think it's only in recent years that everyone started using it without having a position, without yes, understanding absolutely. it. absolutely. Before it was kind of, um, you know, it was an activist sort of language and then it became normalised. Totally. So this is academics using it before everyone else. So this is really special to me. This is something that really struck me. The other thing that's striking about the Sonoxone 9 research so nanoxinol 9 is a component of a spermicide. A spermicide is used to, uh, it was used as a contraceptive, so it either kills the sperm or it just blocks it from, from reaching the uh, uterus. And, and they, they found that it not just killed the sperm, but it killed the HIV within it. So they were trying to see if it worked on HIV. This was the idea. And I think I should have, before going into the trials, I should have mentioned that these trials were not necessary. So as doctors working on HIV, and this is the the peak of the crisis, they know the key 
to work against HIV is also to abolish prostitution, given that prostitution is not necessary. This is political. This is about keeping men's rights intact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No challenge to the systems of prostitution, Absolutely. to the normalisation of it. Is, yeah. that, is that what you would... Exactly. And what the researchers know very well is that women are constrained into sex acts they don't want. It's called rape. So they know very well that they don't get to decide whether their customers wear condoms or not. So they know this really well. They know that they don't have a say in what kind of sex acts they engage in. They don't have a say in what they do as women in prostitution. And they don't care about this. They don't say, here we have a situation of sexual violence. Let's do something about male sexual violence to stop the, pandem the epidemic of HIV. No. They say, this is the situation. So women have to adapt. Mm -hmm. So already we're in a situation of what in the, so in the medical jargon is called an exploitative clinical research. Because in the sense of you don't have to overburden an already burdened population to do this research. And because they actually you, call it exploitative? No, this is, this is not what they called. But this is but it it's would referred qualify. to. Yes. Okay. Because you're not going to the actual root you're not going to the actual issue and you're going to the side that's already at risk of a disease and then you, ha you put them at risk you, of You put trial. them at further risk. So in other exactly. words, what they're not doing is saying, for example, yeah. um, here, here's a group of women who have breast cancer. Yeah. We are going, and we're, we're treating them in all of the usual ways. Mm -hmm. And we're now going to trial a drug yeah. to see if it reduces the likelihood of it returning. Yeah. Because that, you could argue, has it's a win-win situation. So either it doesn't, it's not effective, mm -hmm. that she's no worse off, exactly. or it might be that she finds that it has actually reduced the risk of it returning. Exactly. In this case, it's the woman who bear the risk, but it's men who benefit. I see. Right. Yes. Whereas they're the one exposing women yes. to the virus. So already, this should, this should have never happened. And researchers relied on the existence of prostitution to test their medicine. And they obviously rely on exposure of women to the, to the virus, otherwise they can't know the, the, the quality or the effectiveness mm. of the drugs. So it's in their interest for women to stay in prostitution. So in this case, the researchers were, were explicitly saying, at least three months, we need those women to stay in prostitution. There's no help to get them out of there. So they have a vested interest in women staying in prostitution to test their medicine, and they have a vested interest in women getting infected, otherwise they can't know. I mean, or being exposed, rather, yes. I, wish, I should say, being exposed, otherwise they don't know if it's effective or not. So do you know about the rates of exposure? Certainly we know that women were put at risk, women yeah. contracted HIV. What do we know? What figures do we have? Or evidence do we have? So in terms of overall as a population, women in prostitution are more likely to contract it. So that's the case. And why is that? Because people would say, and they argue, don't they, mm -hmm. that, w that women in prostitution or sex workers, there's this group, are referred to by those putting mm -hmm. forward this argument mm -hmm. that I'm now going to repeat, is that they are the least likely to contract HIV because these women know how to practice safe sex. So, so they say that these women are absolutely, because it's their job, they say, yeah. Uh, and I've heard this. I've heard this um, about women in the Nevada legal brothels, the legal brothels of Germany, of Holland, of Australia, of New Zealand, where it's decriminalised, as you know. They say that these women, more than any other group of women, know how to practice safe sex. This goes back to the logic of prostitution. 
Now, if you say that a man can do whatever he wants to a woman, as long as he puts the right amount to it, you can't arbitrarily put a line, put a stop to condom use. Of course. You go to get your burger, you, you add more money, you get your toppings. It's like Sonagachi <laughs> with the, um, in India, as, as you know, and you know a lot about this, I want to ask you about it um, in a while. The Bill and Melinda Gates project mm. in Sonagachi, where they distributed mm -hmm. condoms everywhere there was a, uh, well, I mean, prostitution is everywhere in Sonagachi, that's yeah. the point. Massive, major condom distribution. And of course, it was a total unmitigated disaster, despite the fact that I think Bill and Melinda Gates were well-intentioned, because of course, the John who was told by a woman, no, I've been told I have to use a condom because of HIV, he would just go to the next more desperate woman and she would accept it for a bit more money. Yeah. So you're right, there is absolutely no logic to this at all. You cannot police male condom use. You cannot go into the room with him and hold the condom on his dick. No. The reduction of safe sex to not contracting HIV is maddening because it's safe for men. So when men say, oh, I go to Germany because it's cleaner, mm. it's cleaner for them, yes. not for the woman. So we're saying safe sex because men are not at risk yes. of STDs. Which means that their, their female sexual partners outside of prostitution are not at risk. Exactly. There is that. And also safe sex doesn't take into account power, doesn't take into account sexual violence. Mm. So in this context of sexual, male sexual violence, we're talking about safe sex. So I want to, to raise an issue, again, that I explored in my book, and that I think it, it, it sent me absolutely crazy with anger, as many things do on this topic, as you know. And it's about the Lancet Special Edition that was published in 2014 or 15. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was funded, I think, again, by Bill and Melinda Gates. Yeah. And they wanted a special edition of The Lancet, which is the professional peer-reviewed journal that doctors, scientists and the like in healthcare subscribe to. This special edition was on sex work, as they put it, and HIV. Yeah. And they put together a group of papers built on modelling. I mean, not, nothing really scientific, but just their assumptions, where they crunched a load of numbers and decided that if you legalise or decriminalise, mm. whatever, yeah, it, yeah, look, yeah. it's linguistic, it's, yeah. it's almost a semantic, isn't it, between the two. If you legalise or decriminalise sex work globally, yeah. within 10 years you would see a reduction in new infections of around 40%. It was a huge, huge figure. Now, this is, this is how they worked this out. This is what they said. Because... Legalisation or decriminalisation would result in 100% condom use, which would result in 100% less, like an elimination of police violence and abuse and corruption towards women in prostitution. It would also eliminate violence from the punters, but it would also mean 100% attendance rate at sexual health clinics, because all of the stigma would have been removed. I mean... I'm saying 100%. They didn't say 100%, they, but they used language such as elimination. It would mean total condom use. It would mean the women would go to a sexual health clinic. It would mean there would be no opportunity for police violence and corruption. It would mean a total and utter reduction in violence from Johns, from punters, towards women in prostitution, which would then result in a huge drop 
in HIV infections. Tell me what you think about that. Anyone that thinks, by the way, I'm exaggerating, you can have a look at my book, The Pimping of Prostitution. <laughs> so first of all, this is basic mathematics. No demand, no supply. More sexual interactions, more penetrative interactions, more risk of HIV. This is mathematics. So you can't have, you know, if everyone stopped having <laughs> this sort of interactions, HIV would disappear. This is just basic mathematics. The other thing I wanted to say about condom use. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, used to run a 100% COP program. But organizations that support pimping worked against that program. Why did they work against that program? Because men do not want to wear condoms. And this is not just in prostitution, this is just in any sort of like heterosexual sex or any type of thing. Men do not want to wear condoms. And it is precisely because they do not want to wear condoms that they have tired women to get to develop this non-anoxinal 9, to develop a method, a contraceptive method, that would take the responsibility away from men and leave it on women. See, this is what made my blood run cold when I was in New Zealand researching this issue and heard from women in the decriminalised brothels mm -hmm. that they were being given PrEP. And I thought, my God, I didn't think this is fantastic because it means that they're not at risk of HIV. I thought, oh my God, this means the men aren't going to be using condoms, which means unwanted pregnancies. Mm -hmm. All kinds of health risks and also a complete reversal of the semi-normalisation of condom use in yeah. those brothels. Of course, if other populations at risk of HIV, active, sexually active gay men, for example, want to use PrEP, fine, that's an entirely different issue and risk level. But for prostituted women, it's terrible. And it's good that you mentioned pregnancy because we're forgetting sexual differences. I mean, again, we're adopting the male point of view and the only risk is STDs. Of course. Let's, let's just roll back a little bit towards the medical trials because obviously you've been looking into this for some time. They officially stopped in, was it 2004? So there was evidence that the product was risky, but the, the trials continued. They were never stopped. The other thing is that there was a phase one trial carried out on women in prostitution. And a phase one trial is the riskiest part of the trial, and you only do it on a healthy population. You would never do that on women who are at high risk of getting whatever So what, what is it? What is the trial? So the, the phases go phase one, two, three, four. So phase one, you take a really small sample, and you make sure the people are healthy, and they're not at risk. In this case, they took women in prostitution, a small sample. Most of the other trials on anoxyl 9 are phase 3, high risk. So you've already tested, you know, basic issues about the drug. And then you can get a bigger sample. And they can be a higher risk group, and then it's fine. But in this case, there was this, and nothing happened. The other thing that's really worrying is that the basic, basic ethical principles were not, um, how would you say, implemented. They were not taken into account. The majority of women did not know three months into the trial what they were being tested for. This is in the 2002 study published by Lut van Damme. And the researchers of this study published a separate study on the ethical issues. And they are saying, they're, they're very explicit about this, and they admit, but I would have preferred them not carrying on the study rather than admitting the issues. Three months into the trial, they didn't know. It's only three months later that most of them knew the difference between a placebo and the actual drug they're and having. And the placebo is basically, it, it's, a, it's, it's not a drug. It, it's, it could be just an aspirin or it could just exactly. be a, a white M&M or anything. Exactly. And this is how you test the efficacy of a, of a drug. 
So they didn't know about this. They didn't know it didn't have the same efficiency. Um, most, in the well, most of the trials women are illiterate. Um, in one case, in the 2002 trial, there were 16-year-old girls in South Africa. And these women are recruited at truck stops. Yes, the most disenfranchised women within the prostitution system. Within the prostitution system. So this is really an issue because typically it implies sex trafficking as well when you're mm. not. But they were not worried about this. And in South Africa, when they had 16-year-old girls, the year before they started recruiting 16-year-old girls in prostitution to test drugs on them, South Africa had ratified the UN protocol for the uh, suppression and prevention of mm -hmm. child prostitution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you have UNAIDS funding, sponsoring, approving. So UNAIDS were involved in this drug trial mm -hmm. as well, which is quite, quite incredible, isn't it? And UNAIDS, as we know, takes a very pro-prostitution stance, and it has for some years now. Yeah, and it has been collaborating with the Global Network of Sex Work Projects for decades. Tell now. us a little bit about the Global Network. So this Global Network is a heavily funded lobby that gathers all the major pro-prostitution, pro-pimping organizations in the world. So, for example, you would have the Strass in France. Rose Alliance in Rose Sweden. Alliance. Yeah, all of those. And it lobbies actively for the complete decriminalization of pimping, sex trafficking, everything about prostitution. And they're heavily active across East Africa. Right? That's where I came across okay. them, in Kenya, um, yeah. in, in um, Uganda. Yeah. And South Africa as well, of course. I've come across them there. Southeast Asia, I met yeah. one of the lobby groups in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Some of the workshops they do in Kenya is that they gather women in prostitution and then the women in prostitution tell them their concerns about their pimps and the situation. And then they conclude, oh, if you actually explain to them that pimping is good for them and decriminalization is good for them. And then we gave them red scarves to thank them for their participation. I was there in Nairobi in... I think it was 2015, and I went to one of the really big, again, uh, global network affiliated organisations there, called something like the Hostess and Bar Association. It's, it's effectively prostituted women that are supposedly unionised. And I went to the headquarters, and the headquarters were quite plush. I mean, this is Nairobi we're talking. And it was, you know, qu quite well-staffed, very well-staffed, in fact. And there were these white American young researchers there who were and there were a huge crowd of women in the courtyard waiting to be interviewed and they get money they get twenty dollars which is a lot and they were being interviewed about their circumstances about what they want to see effectively they were being asked do you want your clients and this is their language not mine to be criminalized yes or no well if i was in prostitution through absolute necessity being pimped, being exploited, perhaps with a reliance on drugs and alcohol, as many of the women have, I wouldn't want my, I wouldn't want the Johns to be criminalised because it would mean I wouldn't have any money. So it's it's a, the answer is in the question. And they published this in a big report that then showed, didn't it, that women in prostitution, sex workers, do not want the Nordic model anywhere near them. It's blatant lobbying and exploitative of those women in the extreme. They'd come along after a night of being bought and sold and half of them looked like they were, they just wanted to lie down and go to sleep. 
and they were being interviewed because of this $20 and used and abused further. And there's also something in the discussion about, oh, if you abolish prostitution, you leave women with nothing. Well, you're admitting that prostitution is a last resort, what mm -hmm. you do, when you really have nothing else left. And then you do something worse. You condemn women. You say, that's the only thing you're good for. Mm. I think this is the real message. And we know that women in prostitution are the ones at the bottom of the ladder. So we're supposed to accept, as feminists, there is a, sex, there is a, class, a subclass of women yeah. for whom this is, this is the only thing they're worthy of. Yeah. But, and, and it brings me, of course, to, to um, I think, the most pertinent phrase about this particular aspect, this mm. particular argument, which was when Kenneth Roth, who was at the time... Mm -hmm. Back in 2015, when Amnesty uh, voted to support blanket decriminalisation of all aspects of the sex trade, including pimping, and brothel owning and the like, Kenneth Roth, who was at the time head of Human Rights Watch, was supportive of this policy, and it played out on Twitter, as these things do, and he was both supported and condemned, depending on which side of this we're on. And he said, in response to one of the feminist abolitionists, Yes, I understand why there are concerns about sex work, aspects of sex work, but for some women, and he meant brown women, he meant women in the global south, um, he meant women in India, etc. What are they going to do? How, why would you remove the opportunity, or the only opportunity, for them to earn money if they have nothing else? Something like this, I paraphrase. And Rachel Moran, who, as you know, is a great feminist abolitionist sex trade survivor, replied on Twitter and said, the thing is, Kenneth, the thing to do when a woman is hungry is to put food in her mouth and not your cock. And I think that says it all, really, doesn't it? It does. It does. I think something... To return to the trials, the expression sex workers, it's already a brilliant idea because it turns rapists into mere customers, but in the case of clinical trials it turns a vulnerable population into a professional population. And so you're just saying it's part of their activity, and so you remove another ethical issue that was involved in there. So in other words, you're showing that this group are being experimented on whenever any drug comes up that would actually give men permission to not use a condom. Exactly. So those are safety trials, they're, they're classical clinical trials, and those have stopped in, at such huge scale of using women in prostitution. I don't have evidence of this going on. But if you look at trials on women, especially in Africa, that happens in Africa, you will see that a part of the population is in prostitution. But this will be mentioned quickly. Right. So in other words, they won't emphasize it. It'll they won't emphasize it. Mention it in passing. Yeah, and you would have to dig into each research. What has continued instead, so this was safety trials, so you test whether a drug can be used. Uh -huh. But then you also have demonstration projects, so demonstration trials. So what you do is that you have developed a drug, but you want to test it in real life conditions. So you don't want to test it in a clinical condition, you want to test it as people go on about their daily lives. So, I don't know, you have the aspirin and you're like, oh, will people use it? Will, will people find it easy to use? And then you just let them live their lives and then you test. This is when you, you see, because there's the efficacy, but then there's also the use, mm -hmm. if it's adapted to people. And these demonstration trials are going on massively on women in prostitution. Another one of those trials, um, and then I will <laughs> stop there maybe, um, which may, pushes me to think that pimps are benefiting from this, is the one carried out in Sonagachi. 
so you'll notice more of that than me, of course, but Sonagashi is this, it's a village, brothel, practically, uh, in Kolkata in India. It's an entire area that's populated just by prostitution. That is the so-called industry. Yeah. And describe the area. I mean, it's, it's highly... Yeah. In, I mean, it's, 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 it's all... I suppose you can describe it as a slum. Yeah. Where women re- are required to live and to be prostituted, where men know um, where to come to buy sex. Yeah. And the pimps and the drug dealers are constantly surrounding the areas and controlling the women, taking the money. Yeah, and what's interesting about those cases is that you really see that sex determines where you're placed in the prostitution. I mean, whether you're female sex or male sex, because it's like the case of Kandapara, this village brothel in Bangladesh. The boys who are born into the brothel do not end up prostituted. Mm. So this is where you see the importance Mm -hmm. of the female sex. Oh, like Wadia, um, Wadia in um, Gujarat, Mm -hmm. towards the border of, of Rajasthan. It's a village built on prostitution. That, that is what happens. The boys are raised as pimps, the girls, or, or assistant pimps, the girls are raised to be prostituted, and that is the industry. Yeah. And it was quite an incredible thing happened a few years ago, sometime around 2010, 11, I think. It was found that, obviously, by human rights organisations that could no longer ignore it because feminists, Indian feminists, um, such as Ruchira Gupta and others had exposed the fact that this village was being built on the exploitation of girls who then grow into women. And so this NGO decided that a way to keep girls from being prostituted once they reached 12, 13, was mass marriage, was to marry them to older men, of course in polygamous relationships, of course, and they had this group, this mass wedding in the village, where loads of girls married older men, much, much older men, and guess what happened? They were required to have sex with their husband, they were abused and exploited domestically by him, and they were still prostituted. That was the response from an NGO, a so-called human rights organisation in Gujarat, to the exploitation of girls in Wadia. Yeah, in Sonagachi, Janice Raymond, in her book... um not a choice, not a job. She explains that um, when she visited, she was talking about the case of um, girls to prepare them for prostitution. They would be, they would have um, their vaginas widened with speculums just so they were ready for it. I mean, if you're a human rights organization or if you're like the Gates Foundation, there's a lot of work you want to do there, but not the work. <laughs> but they went on to do something completely different, which was to distribute condoms and to try to get peer educators to talk to women in other brothels to also insist that their clients yeah. use condoms. Yeah. It's a joke. Yeah. And then there is this uh, organization, uh, the DMSC, so the Durbar Mahila Samanwaya Committee, and I'm sorry about the pronunciation, which defends the interests of pimps in Sonagachi. In Sonagachi, right. Yeah. And so what they happen is that in 2000... Um, 2000, 2003, the Gates Foundation donated 1 million US dollars to the DMSC so that they could carry out a demonstration project for PrEP. So what happened is that they gave the PrEP to women to see how they would use it in normal conditions. In Sonagachi, Brussels? Yeah. And what happened? Well, there wasn't a specific... um, There were no major issues with the drugs because it was already... The safety was already kind of certain in a way, but I mean, the, 
population is interesting. I mean, a woman committed suicide um, within the trial, others left prostitution. I mean, it's interesting the sort of population you're looking at and the things that happen, and it's not of concern at all. People might say, yes, this is terrible, and be grateful, I would hope, that you've exposed this, these drug trials. But they'd say, what relevance does it have today? The last trial was in 2004 of... Prep. And what relevance does it have today? Why should we be concerned right here, right now? It has a huge relevance because these demonstration projects are still going on in the US, in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. With what drugs? With which drugs do With you know? still um, mostly PrEP, HIV-related drugs, anything, basically any <laughs> HIV innovation, as you were saying, yep. is practically tested on women prostitution. It has relevance because PrEP, in particular, is massively promoted these days. At any anti-AIDS center, you will see, I mean, you just see ads for it in the Parisian tube, right? It's just everywhere. Everywhere you have this prep. There's a massive push for prep. Look, thank you. You are brilliant. Uh, and we're going to talk more. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed episode one with Yagmore. If you want to hear more from her, there is an episode two. In that episode, she talks about what to do about prostitution and the sex trade. And it's fascinating. You'll find it on my Substack. <laughs>